Hi, I'm Fry. And I'm Bree from Pontifax, a papal history podcast. And Sam has generously given us the opportunity to tell you about our show, where we are ranking the popes from Peter to Francis. Besides telling their life story, we are ranking them based on the success of their papacy, scandal, their impact on the secular world, what their face looks like, and so much more. In the end, our best popes will battle it out to be the popiest pope who ever poped. And just for a taste, I'm going to tell you a little saga about one of the most important papal debates on witchcraft that the church has ever had, and that's the conundrum of Harry Potter. In 2003, news around the world reported on an offhand comment by the Pontifical Council about how Pope John Paul II approved of Harry Potter because they helped children tell the difference between good and evil and demonstrated values consistent with the Bible. Cool, right? Yeah. But this caused a whole hubbub on both sides. And one of the outcomes was that Cardinal Ratzinger, future Pope Benedict XVI, receives a letter complaining and arguing that Harry Potter corrupted young hearts through witchcraft. Ratzinger agrees and writes back, These are subtle seductions that are barely noticeable, and precisely because of that, deeply affect children and corrupt the Christian faith in souls before it can even properly grow and mature. So Benedict is not a Harry Potter fan. Clearly. And his chief exorcist, Friar Amorth, has said, quote, Behind Harry Potter hides the signature of the king of the darkness, the devil. Fast forward to 2017 and Pope Francis, who decides to comment on Harry Potter for a whole other reason. And that is that he is against the American translation of the title from Philosopher's Stone to the Sorcerer's Stone. Why? Because the Philosopher's Stone is an actual legend, and changing it for Americans is implying that their children are too stupid to understand and are not being given the opportunity to learn the new word or the legend. Thank you, Francis. Following this statement, publishers in France agreed to revert to the original title, and Francis said he was pleased. So clearly, if this is his biggest concern, Francis is cool with Harry Potter. Oh yeah, for sure. So if you like the superstition, weird, and wild things that go along with witchcraft, trials, and magic, you should join us after this episode for Pontifax. We promise, popes have gotten up to some equally bizarre and outrageous things. You can find Pontifax on all your favorite podcatching services. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at PontifaxPod. And with that, handsome and intelligent listeners, now we invite you to enjoy the latest episode of the History of Witchcraft. Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 32 Never a Cross Left. Where peace and concord is, there is God and all that's good. Where strife and dissension is, there is the devil and all that's evil. An excerpt from a flyleaf of John Newt's copy of John Walker's Sufferings of the Clergy, 1714. 
It is the ordinary mirth of the malignants of this city to discourse of the association of witches in the associated counties, but by this they shall understand the truth of the old proverb, which is that where God hath his church, the devil hath his chapel. The Parliamentary Journal, July 1645 Where is it written in all the Old and New Testaments that a witch is a murderer, or hath power to kill by witchcraft, or to afflict with any disease or infirmity? Where is it written that witches have bigs for imps to suck on, that the devil setteth privy marks upon witches, that witches can hurt corn or cattle, or can fly in the air? Where do we read of a he-devil or she-devil called incubus or succubus that useth generation or copulation? A Candle in the Dark, Thomas Aidy, published in 1656. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last time, we looked at the political situation that had developed in England during Charles's reign, particularly at how his religious reforms clashed with his unwillingness to hear the grievances of Parliament. When he finally did so, once his Scottish subjects were in open revolt and he had exhausted all of her options, the powder keg exploded. His closest secular ally, the Earl of Strafford, was attainted by Parliament for treason and executed, despite the King's attempts to protect him. Archbishop Lord, the champion of Charles's religious reforms and favourite enemy of the Puritans, was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London, but managed to avoid the headsman's axe until 1645, long after the Civil War proper was in full swing. By the time Archbishop Lord's head rolled off the block, a curious event was developing in the southeastern counties of England. While the armies of Parliament and King were slaughtering each other across the Midlands and the North, a young law clerk had begun fulfilling his Christian mission to root out and punish the servants of the devil. Matthew Hopkins, the witch-finder general, and his colleague John Stern would go on to oversee the single greatest witch hunt in English history. The story of his life and his work will be the topic of the next episode. Originally, I planned for that to be today, but I found myself going off on tangents trying to explain the context of the time. So today, we'll be exploring the context of the time, and try to understand why this seemingly isolated and incredibly violent spike in witch trials occurred when, where, and how it did. Generally speaking, there are three main arguments on why Hopkins was not only willing to conduct his trials in the first place, but also why the communities he visited across the home counties supported him. These arguments revolve around, firstly, a breakdown in the legitimate state authorities due to the Civil War, authorities that had been keeping rural desires to hunt witches under control. Secondly, an overwhelming religious fervour that had been simmering for decades and had led to the war in the first place, which led to the persecution of suspected witches in an attempt to forge a godly kingdom. And thirdly, the feminist theory that the witch hunts more generally were driven by patriarchal institutions that sought to assert dominance over rebellious women, and in Hopkins' time were focused on those women who failed or otherwise bucked their societal expectations. 
There are other theories, naturally, but in the scholarship I've read, it is these three that are the most pervasive. They're also the most convincing, at least in part. First, we'll examine the breakdown of traditional authorities, and what role this could have played in the Hopkins outbreak. As we have seen in previous episodes, by and large, the official judicial process hampered witch trials. When the justices of the Assizes were on their circuits, they kept a firm hand on proceedings. Establishment scepticism was high, or at least royally appointed justices were credulous of the more extravagant testimonies. Naturally, the political instability that followed the King's flight from London put an end to such routine. Professor Brian Levock, in his chapter State Building and Witch Hunting, states that, regarding the procedures used by Hopkins and Stern, quote, Under normal circumstances, the judges of the Assizes would have prevented the use of such evidence at the trials. At the Essex Assize, in the summer of 1645, however, where most of the early convictions took place, the circuit judges from Westminster were not in attendance, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, Without the participation of judges from the central court, the justices of the peace who prosecuted the cases were given much more latitude in the use of evidence than they would have otherwise received, end quote. Professor James Sharp has likewise assigned the responsibility for the Hopkins trials at the feet of a collapsing government machinery. Not only were the moderating influences of the Assizes judges not present at the early, crucial stages, when witch trials transformed into panics, but those authorities that may have been able to take up this restraining role were far more preoccupied by the war effort. If the choice was between ensuring supplies and recruitment for the parliamentary armies, or spending days and weeks in local court making sure the letter of the law was followed, they picked the former. Something common to all of these arguments is that the pressure for witch trials was either solely from below, from the country peasants of the home counties, or local gentry, who had the willing support of these same peasants. The highest authorities, be they royalist or parliamentarian, were often opposed to the trials. Thomas Aidy, whose book A Candle in the Dark I read an excerpt from at the beginning of today's episode, was a physician during the period, and he considered beliefs in witchcraft to be just the kind of superstition that the reforming parliamentarians wanted to sweep away. In that excerpt, he makes a logical point. If the Puritan cause is to eschew anything not stated in the Bible, and to discard the accumulated detritus of the last millennium and a half, then surely witch beliefs are of paramount concern. Indeed, the Moderate Intelligencer, a parliamentary journal, described the Hopkins trial with contempt. Quote, Whence is it that the devils should choose to be conversant with silly women that know not their right hands from their left is the great wonder. They will meddle with none but poor old women, as appears by what we have received this day from Berry. As we touched on last episode, both parliamentary and royalist writers attributed malevolent magical abilities to their opponents. Prince Rupert was a common target for such slander. In the Signs and Wonders from Heaven, the prosecution of a number of Norfolk witches was depicted as hindering the royalist cause, and Rupert in particular. They were said to report to him on future events. Famously, 
Prince Rupert had a dog called Boy. For the parliamentarian press, this was obviously the prince's familiar. One report describes Boy thus. Certainly, he is some Lapland lady who by nature was once a handsome white woman, and now by art is to become a handsome white dog, and hath vowed to follow the prince to preserve him from mischief. The dog was given a wide range of fantastical abilities. He could find buried treasure, and caught bullets intended for Rupert in his mouth. One apparent witness said, Once I gave him a very heart stroke with a confiding dagger, but it slid off his skin as if it had been armour of proof anointed over with quicksilver. Boy could also prophesize, quote, as well as my Lady Davis or Mother Shipton, end quote. Aside from Prince Rupert and his magical dog, leaders of the parliamentarian cause were denigrated in the press, even by their own side. Oliver Cromwell was targeted by his political opponents, most notably Denzel Hollers, who had been one of the king's most famous opponents in parliament, but considered himself a moderate, and despaired that things had gone so far. He and Cromwell were mutual enemies, despising each other, and quite publicly too. Hollers compared Cromwell's efforts against the established order as witchcraft, quote, Your sabbats, when you have laid by your assumed shapes, with which you have cozened the world and resumed your own, imparting to each other and both of you to your fellow witches, end quote. One royalist writer remarked of the Hopkins trials thus, We have also multitudes of witches among us, for in Essex and Suffolk, there were above 200 indicted within these two years, and above the one half of them executed. More, I may well say, than ever this island bred since the creation, I speak it with horror. God guard us from the devil, for I think he was never so busy upon any part of the earth that was enlightened within the beams of Christianity, nor do I wonder at it, for there's never a cross left to fright him away." Lack of authority also extended to the soldiers themselves. In the town of Warminster, in the county of Wiltshire, a woman called Anne Warburton was attacked by a group of soldiers. Wiltshire had supported Parliament from the outset, but was occupied by the Royalists from 1642 until 1645. It was in 1644 that Anne Warburton suffered her attack, although she survived to complain about her assailants to court. Quote, Upon the feast day of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary last past, was two years since one George Long of Warminster came to the house of your petitioner, and two soldiers in arms with him. And the said Long and one of the soldiers required the petitioner to open her door, who answered she would not unless he was an officer. Then the said Long said he was as good as any officer whatsoever, and immediately by force he broke down a window leaf, which fell into the house upon a pail of water, whereby both window leaf and pail of water fell upon your petitioner and her child, which did so bruise the child that it fell sick and shortly after died. Yet not being contented, they also broke up the door and entered the house by force, and then the said long fell to biting, pinching, and scratching of your petitioner, saying and swearing in most 
execrable and ignominious manner. She was a witch, and therefore he would have her blood, which he drawed from her in great abundance." End quote. So, a group of soldiers suspected Anne to be a witch and broke into her house, and in so doing, fatally injured her child, and then assaulted her with nails and teeth to try and draw her blood, as was the traditional cure for witchcraft. George Long, the leader of this group, appears to have run away from the charges, and he did not appear in court. The idea that the war had broken the legal infrastructure, and created a vacuum which allowed for more extreme views to be enforced, is a sensible one in my mind. Yet even had the legal system entirely collapsed, this would not explain the witch trials alone. For an absence of judicial credulity to be taken advantage of, there had to have already been supporters of mass trials that were now able to enforce their will. We have alluded to this bottom-up pressure already. It existed. The question, as always with the history of witchcraft, is why? The first possible cause for this pressure for witch trials is misogyny. Louise Jackson, Lyndall Roper, and Marianne Hester are some of the most prolific advocates of this theory. From my understanding, this theory consists of two main elements. The first is that the witch trials, not just in England but across Europe, were primarily an attempt by the patriarchal authorities of early modern Europe to, quote, assert male supremacy over women through mechanisms of violence, end quote. I don't find this argument convincing, it seems too conspiratorial, and I find the second element to be more convincing through its more grounded basis. Those that found themselves on trial in a witch panic were suspected because their failure to adhere to social norms marked them as different in a time when the other was a threat. This is more convincing. As we've seen time and again, early modern society was intensely hierarchical and traditional, and those that booked the trend were seldom praised for their innovation. Professor Jackson in particular highlights certain elements of the Hopkins Confessions that suggest that the sex of the suspect was vital. The relationship between a witch and her familiars became much more sexualized. Margaret Bates confessed that, quote, when she was at work, she felt a thing come upon her legs and go into her secret parts and nipped her in her secret parts where her marks were found, end quote. Good Smith stated that her own familiars, quote, hang in her secret parts in a bag and her husband saw it, end quote. Margaret Bennett confessed that, quote, the devil in the shape of a man carried her body over a clothes into a thicket of bushes and there lay with her, and after scratched her hand with the bushes, end quote. Jaina Lindstead, quote, met with the devil in the shape of a man who would have lay with her, but she denied him, whereupon he threatened her, but did her no hurt, end quote. Widow Thomasine Ratcliffe, quote, confessed that a month after the death of her husband, there came one to her in the shape of her husband and lay heavy upon her, and she asked him if he would kill her. And he answered in the voice of her husband, No, I will be a loving husband, end quote. Aside from the focus on their sexuality, 
The confessions have a substantial focus on the behaviour of the suspect, particularly in their role as mothers and wives. The most drastic of their moral failings were those of murder, either of their husbands or their children. Around a fifth of all Suffolk confessions from this period involve the murder or attempted murder of the witch's own child. One, the confession of Priscilla Collett, involved the attempted killing of her newborn after the devil appeared to her and promised her an escape from poverty if she killed her children. Quote, In a sickness, about twelve years since, the devil tempted to make way with her children, or else should always continue poor. And he then demanded a covenant of her, which she did deny, but she carried one of her children and laid it close to the fire to burn it, and went to bed again, and the fire burnt the hair and the headlining, and she heard it cry but could not have the power to help it, but one of her other children pulled it away." End quote. We've seen such temptations before. The peasant woman who confessed to selling her soul for a flock of sheep, which was the most wealth she could imagine. The traditional trick of the devil, gifting his servants banknotes, which transformed into leaves as soon as he left. As with these cases, when Priscilla eventually relented and accepted the devil's bargain, his offer of ten shillings never materialised. Of course, infanticide was sadly common throughout this period, and often for financial reasons. Desperate and unmarried or widowed mothers had to make that terrible choice in order for the rest of their family to survive, and of course there were also cases that would be diagnosed by modern medicine as postpartum or postnatal depression. Quite recently, actually, I heard a paper by the University of St Andrews's Morag Allen Campbell that discussed cases of PPD-motivated infanticide much earlier than you might expect, and how its treatment by medical professionals and the law has altered significantly over the last century and a half. One of the things that stuck with me was that she'd found that people consider PPD to be a modern illness, when it simply isn't the case, as we can see in the confessions of the Hopkins witches. Professor Jackson further contextualises the Collett case. Collett was ill when the devil supposedly appeared to her, although whether this was a physical or mental ailment is unclear. But in either case, the sickness affected her mental well-being. If this was PPD, she may have felt incredibly hostile feelings towards her children, and projected these to the devil as the cause of them. Another confession involving attempted infanticide can be seen in the case of Mary Scrutton. Scrutton confessed that, quote, Devil appeared to her twice, once like a bear, once like a cat, and that she tempted her, in a hollow voice, to kill her child. Professor Jackson makes a comment here that this is the only time she'd found the devil referred to as female, although she posits that this may be because of the sex of the cat. Children were not the only targets in these confessions. Husbands were just as common. Susanna Stegold confessed to having met the devil shortly after her wedding. She stated that she knew she had powers after wishing a greedy pig of hers would not eat as much fodder, and it promptly died. Her husband, who most likely beat her, would later suffer from mental illness, eventually fatally, 
and Stiegald blamed herself for his death. Quote, her husband being a bad husband, she wished he might depart from her, meaning, as she said, that he should die. And presently after, he died mad. She cried out, Oh, my dear husband, but being asked whether she bewitched him or no, and said she wished ill wishes to him, and whatsoever she wished came to pass. His illness could not be explained by natural means, and so the cause must be supernatural. Jackson argues that Susanna believed that she had failed in her wifely role. Accepting the beatings of her husband was the expected duty of a good wife, provided he didn't go too far. For her to despise her lawful spouse and to wish him dead was failure enough. That her wishes apparently came true was evidence of her own evil, and Jackson states that Stiegold thought she was a witch, confessing out of guilt and fervently believing her own invention that she had three imps. In the framework of early modern English society, corruption by the devil was the only explanation for her feelings and experiences. Susanna Stiegold would be hanged for her maleficium. Professor Jackson argues that, in her studies of the Suffolk trials, it was the notoriety of the witch trials themselves that made these women consider their behaviour through a spiritual lens. The confessions of these women were, quote, judging themselves as wives and mothers. They were judging their angers, their bitterness, their fears and their failures to live up to the expectations of others, end quote. With the right persuasion, or coercion, these women would confess their perceived crimes to the witchfinders, and they would hang for them. The third factor, which is also partly connected to the feminist theory, is the religious element. Just like with social hierarchy, religion was unavoidable in early modern society, and the atmosphere of southeastern England during the Wars of the Three Kingdoms was particularly claustrophobic. The relationship between the popularity of Puritanism and the number of witch trials has been exhaustively researched and is still highly debated. Professor Jackson, for example, disputes the importance of Puritanism to the witch trials, naturally preferring her own interpretation. Whereas Dr. Peter Elmer considers the religious beliefs of East Anglian society to be deeply intertwined with their political allegiance, and both combined created the exceptional circumstances of the Hopkins trials. Elmer bases his argument on two important factors. Firstly, the people of southeastern England were highly politicised by the religious and political battles going on throughout the country. When the order of the universe is being questioned, it is very difficult to stay neutral. However, he points out that the southeast was not alone in facing these developments. So why the difference? Why were there not other mass trials across England? It is in combination with the second factor that the southeast was very rarely the subject of the military battles of the war. To quote Elmer in his 2016 Witchcraft, Witch Hunting and Politics in Early Modern England, the absence of fighting and resulting devastation meant that local government and administration, far from collapsing in this region, continued to function, 
and allowed local elites an opportunity to rebuild their communities, albeit according to a new set of precepts laid down by a consortium of godly preachers and god-fearing magistrates. The witch hunts in East Anglia, I shall argue, were not, therefore, a judicial aberration, but rather should be seen as part of a concerted attempt by a coalition of local interest groups to construct a godly society purged of its various enemies, including witches, and reconstituted on sound biblical principles." End quote. In other words, Elmer is arguing that the judicial systems of East Anglia were not lowering their standards due to an absence of central supervision, but were instead attempting to impose a new, populist and reformed set of standards. Elmer points to the proliferation of rhetoric describing the country as a body politic, with all the medical metaphors that entails. To root out witches was to detox. The Hopkins trials were not a tragedy of local authorities being too weak-willed to resist megalomaniacal witch hunters, but deliberate and popular attempts to fix a system perceived as too lenient and ungodly. In this region, the opposition to the Laudian religious reforms had been significant. The reforms had been considered by some to simply be attempts to bring Catholicism back to England. Upon the outbreak of war between King and Parliament, seven Catholic gentry families living in Suffolk were attacked by mobs. Six of these families lived in towns that would later welcome Hopkins and Stern with open arms. However, one did not have to be a recusant Catholic to risk the wrath of the Presbyterian authorities, and it would be a mistake to imagine that the quote-unquote Puritan cause was a unified one. Many of those accused of witchcraft had previously been considered some of the most godly and educated in their communities. One of the first victims of the witch hunt, Rebecca West, was first suspected of diabolism because she attended a series of Bible meetings. The wife of a Puritan minister would be executed, despite being described as, quote, very godly and religious. Why did these previously upstanding individuals come under suspicion? In Elmer's view, these were casualties of a frantic and inconsistent burst of zealotry as these Puritan communities sought to enforce a vaguely defined orthodoxy, combined with a fear of royalist and satanic subversives in their midst. Elmer suggests that it was the conclusion of the First Civil War with the capture of Charles by the Scots, combined with the growing power of the army, that marks a turning point in the trials. The entropy of victory, to borrow a turn of phrase from Mike Duncan, undermined the Puritan consensus as there was no longer a common foe to rally against. This, in turn, led to disagreements on all manner of things, including whether or not to prosecute witches, and if so, how to go about doing so. Next episode, we will finally look at the life and times of Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. Now we have the context out of the way, and I have given you a sample of possible reasons for his career, we can follow Hopkins as he hangs his way across the Eastern Association. Before we leave off today, I'm very proud to announce that I have been invited to join the Recorded History Podcast Network, and as you may have noticed, I have accepted that invitation. 
It's an honour to be listed alongside the incredible shows that are already part of recorded history. And this means great things for the history of witchcraft. Greater exposure. A chance to collaborate with some of the best podcasters on the internet. Some of you listening may have found the show because of the network, and if so, welcome, and I hope you're enjoying yourself. What this means for you, my listeners, is that there will be promotions and adverts appearing in the episodes. Now, these shouldn't be particularly obnoxious, and if anyone has any feedback about them, please let me know. I did inquire from my patrons before accepting the invitation, and I'm happy to say that the response was unanimously positive. You can check out the other shows on the network at recordedhistory.net, where you will now also find the history of witchcraft. Also, be sure to check out Pontifacts. A History of the Popes was actually one of my possible choices when I was deciding what topic to do a podcast on. As you might have guessed, that didn't pan out, but that was nothing to do with the subject matter. Brian Fry have recently launched their show, and they are very entertaining and well worth a listen. There'll be a link to their podcast in the description. Thank you to Hammer of the Witches Executed Today, Witchfinder General Michelle G, the Inquisitors Elaine D and Trish G, and all of my demonologists and theologians for supporting me through Patreon. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, please consider giving the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever directory or app you use. And of course, tell a friend if you think they'd be interested. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.